Let's, uh, let's start. Let's think about, I see a church of outrageous grace. Let me just, uh, I, I haven't got a major passage to read, but just give you a little introduction. The book of Acts covers about 30 years of history, and it's the first 30 years of church history. And I believe uh, that the Bible is inspired by the Holy Spirit, and God used real people, ordinary people, writing about real history, real situations, to write the Bible. But they were writing about how God in, moved in their lives, intervened, revelation they had about what he was doing and how he was doing it. And so as we read it and understand what God was saying to them and what was happening, we learn, and the Holy Spirit applies it, it's not just an intellectual exercise, how God is moving with us today and what he's saying to us today. And in the book of Acts, it's, it's, it's really good. It's narrative, it's story, it's, it's dynamic, it's what's going on. It's not just explaining and unpacking doctrine, though I personally love those passages as well, but it's, it's different. And in it, you have these moments when key things happen, and there's a lot of them. And one of them is in Acts 11, and it's a moment when the gospel leaps out, really, properly, from its initial sort of area amongst Jews and Jewish sort of type people, like the Samaritans were a bit half involved, into the Gentile world, into the much wider world. And uh, the big leap, the first leap, was at Antioch. And uh, when, when the gospel hit Antioch, all sorts of exciting things happened. People got saved, people got healed, people were baptized, they were worshipping Jesus, but many of them weren't Jews at all, they were Greeks and others. And so someone was sent, a man called Barnabas, from Jerusalem to just see what, what was going on and was it okay. And he turns up, and in, I'm going to read from the ESV, which is the English Standard Version, because it's a little more literally translated, which serves my purpose this morning. <laughs> and he turns up at Antioch, and I'm only going to read a verse, and, and he's coming in to this new situation, possibly a new city to him, I don't know, but certainly a whole bunch of people who he wouldn't have known, and he would have wondered whether it was okay, what was happening, for lots of reasons. And it says very simply this, when he, that's Barnabas, came and saw the grace of God, he was glad, and he exhorted them all to remain faithful to the Lord Jesus with steadfast purpose. He was a good man, full of the Holy Spirit and faith. And he was a man full of the Holy Spirit and faith. But the thing that he saw was he saw the grace of God. That's interesting, isn't it? That is a more literal translation than some of ours would say evidence of, which is fine, or, you know, what other things. But it's like, it's just punchy in the original. What he saw, he saw the grace of God. So you can actually see the grace of God in a people. You can see it in an individual. You can see it in a church, which is where he was going. So when we have, I see a church of outrageous grace, that is, there's some literal truth about this, that we want to be a church where people experience the grace of God. They actually see it. They, they will hear about it. They will know about it, but they will see it in us. We will be a people of grace. And our culture and our world desperately needs that. We live in a society that's often called postmodern and won't even bother to try and unpick the jargon, but what it means in a simple sense is that people no longer believe there's any absolute truth. They don't believe in any what they call big stories that explain the whole world. They don't believe in the certainties that they would say past generations did. 
People think, well, there's no truth, it's all relative, who knows what's true, you make your own choices about it all, which sounds at first a little bit attractive, but it's not really at all attractive. It's a sort of experiment. It's sort of unrealistic, if I'm honest. Let me give you one example, which I've used many times. When we all die, and we will all die, not just all of us here, but people across the world, whether we're Hindu, Buddhist, Christian, uh, or atheist, or agnostic, or we think, you know, that we believe in fairies or green men, I don't think, I don't think it's even logically possible that different things will happen to all of us. Like, whatever you believe, it's true for you. That's okay. That somehow, it's all going to be a great smorgasbord of different experiences. There will be one truth. And we will all face it one day. And just that little sobering note reminds us that it is an experiment. It's a, a daft experiment. To say there's no absolute truth, you actually say, what I'm telling you is the truth. I believe, arrogantly, that there's no absolute truth. Now, that is an illogicality, actually. But our culture actually has bought it a lot. And the consequences are a lot of confused people. A very secular society, a very experimental, fragmented, dysfunctional society. And there's a lot of pain and people don't really know what's right and wrong or what they can and can't do. They think they're making their own choices. They're not sure if they are. And I think it has produced a lot of wounded, damaged, broken people and broken situations. And people are hungry for hope. That's not an exaggeration. They are gasping. Is there some truth? Is there some hope? Yes, there is. The gospel offers you hope. The gospel is hope for the hopeless. The gospel is about the grace of God, and that is the best news and gives you the greatest hope of anything. There is a God. He is fundamentally a good God, a God of love, and he is a God of grace and of mercy. And grace is the great secret of the gospel. And it must be the characteristic of gospel people, of churches that believe in Jesus and follow him. We've got to get grace so in us that it comes out and it's visible. A church that's going to offer hope in our postmodern world, offer hope to the confusing a uh, despairing world around us needs to be a church that's got grace and understands grace and lives it. Now, why have we got the word outrageous? Well, I guess if you're mildly cynical, you think, well, you've chosen that because it begins with O, and you've got an acrostic, H-O-P-E, so you've got to have an O. Well, there's a bit of truth in that. You don't have to be cynical to recognize that. But actually, it is a very appropriate word to put with grace. Outrageous grace. If you look in a dictionary, and I did, looked at a couple, these are the sorts of words that tell you what outrageous means. Excessive, shocking, offensive to moral feelings, over the top, scandalous, preposterous, unreasonable. So not to bore you, I won't go on and on. But they're just a selection of words that you'll find in good dictionaries about the word outrageous. And actually, they are appropriate words, some of them anyway, to link to God's grace. They really are scandalous, preposterous, over the top. So I'm going to look at two questions this morning. I'm going to try and be quick on the first one, a little slower on the second one. But the first one's important, even though I know a lot of you in this room will say, well, I sort of know this. 
Don't let it go over your head. Soak in grace. Understand it. The first question is, if we can put it up, why would we call God's grace outrageous? In the light of my brief summary of a dictionary definition, why would we call God's grace outrageous? Well, actually, when you understand it, the gospel and the grace of God displayed in the gospel is almost like those words. It is ridiculous or unfair or amazing might be a nicer word, but over the top or even to some degree offensive. God's grace is a stumbling block to some people. It is an amazing truth and we need to take a few minutes to remind ourselves about it. People will often say all religions are the same. Now, actually I sympathize with that, funnily enough, because I think there is a broad sense in which you could say all religions are sort of the same. There's massive differences, of course, in detail. But in practice, they are all saying something like, this is a way to get right with God or to be ready for the life hereafter or to improve yourself or better yourself in some way. Really, perhaps it's not quite true that they're all the same. There's two sorts of religion in the world. There's a religion of law and there's a religion of grace. And I would argue the only one in the second category is the gospel of Jesus Christ. Now, I'm, I'm careful to put it that way because traditional Christianity and a number of its guises, I'm not making a denominational point, traditional Christianity often slips into being just another religion of law. It really does. I've been there. I know what it is. And it does. And it's a foolish thing to do, but it's easy to do because it panders to our humanity to have a religion of law. But basically, every religion you can think of is fundamentally a religion of some form of law and rules. Some forms of do's and don'ts, various activities, rituals, disciplines, by which men and women, if they try hard enough, if, but they usually don't and they don't succeed, there's often a condemnation built into it, they will somehow get better or get right with God or nearer to God. Now, the New Testament gospel does not say that. It can be distorted and has been, but it doesn't say that. It doesn't emphasize what we have to do for God. It emphasizes what God has already done for us. And we have to start by freely accepting a free gift from God. We have to start like that. You know, there's a good religion of law, if I can put it that way. The best religion of law is actually in the Bible. It's the Old Covenant, the Mosaic Covenant. And the Bible itself, in Hebrews 7, 8, describes the Old Covenant, the Law Covenant, like this, as weak and useless. The Bible itself is rude about its own Law Covenant in the New Testament. It says it's weak and useless. Religion is weak and useless. Laws are weak and useless when it comes to offering any hope or any salvation. Now, why are they weak and useless? Why can the Bible even say that about its own Old Testament laws? Well, it says it because actually what technically is weak and useless is us rather than the law. And the law, particularly, say, the Ten Commandments, is superb in itself. It's a wonderful standard of living. If everybody lived by the Ten Commandments, this would be a wonderful world to live in. 
It really would. Everything would be masses more safe, masses more healthy, masses more peaceful, masses more cheap, probably. Would save us millions and billions. Just the Ten Commandments. But the problem is, the law is fine. We're weak and useless, aren't we? And that is the fundamental problem. The weakness we have, what the Bible calls sin. Our flesh, our sinful nature. If we are ever going to have any hope, if we're going to be saved... God had to do something because we couldn't do anything for ourselves. That is the fundamental problem. We can tinker about a bit, improve a little bit, but the fundamental gap between us and God we can't bridge and even the general desire to improve. There's often a huge gap between what we want and what we intend and what what we love to do and the good we want to do and what we actually produce. And even we fail by our own standards, most of us. But God has done something. He gave his son, Jesus Christ, as a sin offering to deal with all of our sin problem, remove it completely, and make it possible for us to be made pure, something that came through in uh, Annette's prayer interpretation, made pure by the blood of Jesus, made as if we hadn't sinned. Justified is the Bible word for it. The Bible says the wages of sin is death. But the gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. I mean, that's ever so familiar, but just enjoy that verse if you're a Christian. The wages of sin, if you're not a Christian, enjoy it. Become a Christian. The wages of sin is death. There is a gift of God, which is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. And actually, seriously, if you don't know that this morning, you can know it now. You can right now receive the gift of God of eternal life. You don't have to do one thing. You say, oh, I'd like to put this right or do that. You can't and don't need to do that. You don't have to improve yourself one jot. You receive it as a gift. The gift of God is eternal life in Jesus Christ our Lord by putting faith in him, his death, his resurrection. So to be saved by grace, which is the gospel, means we're saved by God's love-inspired actions, not by our own efforts. Someone has put it like this, grace is something for nothing for those who don't deserve anything. That is outrageous. That's why it's outrageous. It is something for nothing for those who don't deserve anything. It's outrageous and it is humbling. And do you know, this is an issue in our lives as human beings. You see, why do we have so many religions of law? Why does Christianity so quickly end up as one if we're not careful? Religions of law flatter the flesh. They actually play to your pride. This is the quirky, odd thing about it. However harsh the laws and rules, however almost sadistic they might seem or masochistic, sometimes that plays even more to the pride. I'm sorry to have to quote this, but I think Islam, particularly its extreme examples of fundamentalist Islam, illustrate the point. Though you could illustrate it in other religions. That it seems, how do people want to dress like that and do that and throw themselves and da da da? Actually, if there are hugely high standards of of things you can do and show yourself to be really almost incredibly disciplined, people like it. It panders to the flesh. But it's not how you get saved or how you find hope or help or peace. It doesn't do anything. Grace 
is about God's mercy, God's forgiveness, God's love, God's wisdom coming into you through Jesus Christ as a gift and you have to be completely humble and open to receive it and say, you know, in my flesh there dwells no good thing. I'm trusting in him. That is grace. It is fundamentally different from religions of law. It does require great humility. Just as I am without one plea, but that your blood was shed for me, O Lamb of God, I come. Just as I am without one plea, but that your blood was shed for me, I come. That is how the gospel works. Now, we haven't got much time for this, but I must notice it, because some of you will be even thinking it as I speak. Can't that be abused? Yes, it can. And I haven't time to unpack all this. Of course it can be abused, but that God doesn't mind. God allows that because he's more concerned with grace. Now, it does matter from our point of view. Let me give you one example quickly. Here's an obvious abuse. Someone can say, and people do say things like that, if what you're saying is true, if grace means God accepts me as is, doesn't that mean he accepts all my beliefs? He accepts all my behaviors as well? Now, that's a common thing. So people say, well, you know, you said he accepted me as I am. Doesn't that mean he accepts all what I believe, all what I do that, that, you know, you say is wrong? Say, I might be saying. No, you've confused things a bit. Let's be careful. God does say he accepts you as you are, as is. You can come as you are, accepted, loved, forgiven. But I would say to you, God loves you too much to leave you as you are. Because there are a lot of things about all of us, I include myself, that are not good for our walk with God, yes, but also for our normal life. They're not good for us. God wants to change us. And a true grace seeker, a true grace seeker would acknowledge that. They'd say, actually, the reason I'm looking for God is I'm dissatisfied with myself. I know I'm not as I should be. I do want to change. That, at heart, is what a true hunger and thirst for God is. It's what drives religion as well, although people try and make their own efforts to to get right. But there's the same drive. There's a hunger. There's a thirst. There's, oh, God, I want to know you. Oh, God, I don't like some of this stuff. Oh, God, help. And grace starts with that point. And therefore, you're open to the fact that God gloriously accepts you as is, but he's going to actually change you. The grace of God is going to teach you to say no to some unrighteousness. There's going to be a Holy Spirit who's a grace gift, who comes into you and begins to recreate and renew your mind and your heart. And you will have a love and a desire to please God, a love for Jesus, a desire to walk with him. And that will work in you by the Holy Spirit to change you from one degree of glory to another. So people who really get grace don't stay the same as when they come. And that's important for the second half I want to say. That's very important for this second question. Really understanding grace has an impact on your life. You can't be a true grace receiver and be unaffected. And so let's talk quite quickly on the second question of the two I want to ask. How can outrageous grace be seen in a church? How can I, so how, what is some of this evidence 
that you have got grace and you understand it. And that perhaps more profoundly, the Holy Spirit is working in our hearts and changing us and renewing our minds and beginning to transform us from one degree of glory to another. Well, I'm going to give you seven quickly, seven characteristics. It will be quick, don't worry. Quick bullet point characteristics of things that grace will do in us that we need to hear, we need to respond to it in our spirits and hearts, and I'm speaking to myself genuinely as well as to you because it's challenging for all of us, and to let the Holy Spirit do it because if we are going to be a church bringing hope to this city, this area, this nation, we've got to be people where you can see the grace of God. Where if Barnabas turned up here, he'd say, that's fine, they've got the real deal. I saw the grace of God. I saw it amongst them. That is the real thing. And that was, he could say that and report it back with joy and confidence. And I would love him to be able to say that about us. I believe he could, but I think we've got to let God change us and move us. Let's quickly look at those seven. People who really get grace are outrageously accepting. Look at that verse that's up there. Accept one another then, just as Christ accepted you in order to bring praise to God. Outrageously accepting. If God loved, and do listen to the logic of this, because it's absolutely right, it's biblical logic, not just because I'm saying it. If God loved and accepted you as you were and as you are, even though when you first became a Christian or came to him, you were in a mess and you were an enemy of God, if he loved and accepted you that, that much, if he sent Jesus to die for you while you were still an enemy... If that's true, and of course it is true, then we must accept people at whatever level we first meet them. You've got to have that fundamental. You know, if you've got to be able, we've got to be able to accept one another as Christ accepted you. Here's one beat up sinner accepted by Christ, here's another beat up sinner accepted by Christ. They've got to be open to the fact that they accept one another on the same basis as Christ accepted them. Now remember some things. When God accepted you, it didn't mean he agreed with all you were doing and all you had done. But he loved you and accepted you before you changed. That is a very important point for you to understand for yourself and for how we deal with other people. Accepting someone as Christ accepted you doesn't mean you think everything they do is okay and it's all fine. But that was true with God with you. And yet he loved you and accepted you before you changed. Now this is very important, probably for all of us to remember, but it's very important for people looking at Christianity and looking into the gospel, looking into the church. Most people... I believe this is true. Most people around us assume they will not be accepted until they change. Okay? Most people assume that, that they will not be accepted until they change. We have got to tell them the outrageous truth that that is not true. That you are accepted as is. That God knew you were an enemy, knew you were a sinner, knows the worst about you, more about you than you know about yourself, and loves you and accepts you before he changes you. We must ourselves not over-worry about this. And I think this is a religious problem. I can see it in myself. I can see it 
in my background, further back, perhaps than this current church, my origins are in a church. I was brought up in a Christian home. And a more legalistic sort of church in many ways, but I can see it as a trace problem through my life, really, that we can worry that people think if we accept them, we are agreeing with what they do and what they believe. And we are more worried that we will be misunderstood by them or probably more so by our fellow Christians that by being accepting to this person who might be pretty deeply into something, you know, living in prostitution, let's take extreme examples, practicing homosexual, uh, drugs or whatever, you know, you can take any example. If if I show too much, people think I think everything they do is okay. Well, you can't carry on worrying like that because God accepts them, you must accept them. And that is not the main thing to worry about. It's not something to worry about. In your heart, you know that what many of people are doing, and including a lot more tidy-looking people than the examples I've given you, what many people are doing is not what God wants. That's why Jesus died for them. But that's not the way the gospel works, that you change first, tidy yourself up, stop being a prostitute, and then we'll talk to you. That is not the way it works. And people need to really get that. We need to get it. Because I think there's a pressure sometimes on us that I don't want people to think, misunderstand, I think it's okay that they do that. Well, God doesn't seem to worry so much as you. I've got water. I'm but you know, I'll drink it. <laughs> no, you, you're okay with this, aren't you? I need it, actually. I think it's very important Grace proclaims things are the other way around. Let's get the point clear and finish it. You won't change at all until you receive God's acceptance. It's that way around. You've got to receive the love of God. You've got to receive the free gift of forgiveness. And the free... You may want to change. I think that's part of repentance. But you don't have to change. It's not like you, you've got to get, oh, I've got to get all this sorted out first. No, no, no. That's not how grace works. And actually, what I'm saying, we have to be open as a grace people. That's how we, when we meet people, we meet them the way God meets them. Amen? Amen. Accepting, as is. Now, I could spend too long on this, I mustn't, but we need to be careful because we can think, oh, isn't this just what the world says with tolerance? I tell you, our world is bonkers about tolerance. But tolerance is a cheap, poor substitute for grace. Do not accept false substitutes. Tolerance is not the same as grace. Tolerance simply implies you endure and put up with something that you personally don't like or value. It's not your thing. You endure, put up with it. Tolerance does not really value people. It simply puts up with their behavior and beliefs and tolerates them. Tolerance cannot accommodate justice and mercy. Tolerance cannot accommodate justice and mercy. The gospel does accommodate justice and mercy. Tolerance at best looks the other way and doesn't interfere. Tolerance cannot embrace us in, our full, in a full knowledge of our weaknesses and sins, love us and then remove the guilt and change us. The grace of God can do all of that. Mere tolerance doesn't do that at all. By the way, contrary to public, pro- public opinion or popular opinion, God is actually pretty tolerant. He's very tolerant. 
He actually tolerates and has done for thousands, millennia, thousands of years, many people who reject him, hate him, spit at him, dislike his ways and believe things that are totally contrary to his truth and actually he knows are very, uh, very much untrue and a distortion of what he's like. But he's actually held off his final judgment for millennia. He's very tolerant. I think he's too tolerant sometimes. Then I remember, oh, thank you, Lord, that you're nice to me. But, you know, to be honest with you, God understands tolerance. But grace is a totally deeper river. It's nothing. That's like the, the shallows. Grace is something that not only loves and accepts, but it forgives and cleanses and changes. Now, we've got to understand grace for ourselves, and it's got to ooze out of us quickly. I said I'd be quick. Dangerous thing to say. We've got to be outrageously welcoming if we're real grace people. Hebrews 13.2, do not forget to show hospitality to strangers, for by so doing, some people have shown hospitality to angels without knowing it. Now, actually, I think welcoming or hospitality is sort of a subsection of acceptance. But this is what I noticed when I was preparing this. The Bible doesn't talk about much, it does a few times, about us accepting people but it talks a lot about us showing hospitality and welcoming them. And I think the Bible's actually more practical. You see, the word acceptance could be a bit theoretical, could be a bit like PC, a bit like the word tolerance. That just means I tolerate you. And I, but actually, the reality, the rooted reality, is that we actually show practical love to people. We actually welcome people who are not like us. You talk to people who are nothing like you. And in a church that understands grace, you should go out of your way to talk to people that are the direct opposite to you. Almost deliberately, I would argue. And we have many opportunities to welcome people. And I suggest that we keep practicing it with renewed enthusiasm to be hospitable and welcoming. We've got a whole bunch of students coming next week and the week after. They're probably quite easy to welcome. They're quite nice, aren't they? But it's a good place to practice especially if you're old and crusty like me, let's practice. Oh, you won't want to talk to anybody like me. We'll try. You know, uh, so let's welcome people who are just, don't they, oh, I'll leave that to anybody under 30 to welcome the students. Don't be stupid. <laughs> I don't know if anybody does think like that, but I fear we do sometimes. And I, and I say, Lord, help us to be welcoming. I, I haven't got much to say on this, except that it is actually, I believe, the practical outworking of acceptance, that the Bible is pretty practical. And actually, if you do accept people, you will be hospitable to them, open your home to them, and welcome them. And actually, God's heart for the gospel, God's gospel heart reflects this. You could have innumerable parables, the one of the, uh, of the banquet, you know, when people won't come. Go out in the highways and byways and force them, welcome them in. You know, the, the gospel of the, the lost son, the, the prodigal son, etc., etc. God is a welcoming God, and he wants us to be a welcoming people. And you were a stranger to God, and you were a stranger to the first church you went to. And I guarantee some of you have got stories of someone being friendly to you early on in your life. And it may well not have been a contemporary. might have been. might have been an older person or something. And you need to see it's very important part of a grace church. Terry Virgo says this in his book, God's Lavish Grace. Assured of our acceptance with God through his grace, we can go unafraid to the waiting world. Let's not be afraid of people who we don't understand, who don't 
aren't like us. Let's not, let's, grace means you're not afraid to show them friendship and acceptance. Okay, quickly, outrageously forgiving. Colossians 3.13. Bear with each other and forgive one another. If any of you has a grievance against someone, forgive as the Lord forgave you. Now, Jesus talks a lot about forgiveness. We've all got to hear this one. If we have been forgiven, God expects us to forgive other people. The big parable is, of course, the parable of the unforgiving servant who's let off a debt of billions of pounds, in effect, and then someone owes him a few thousand and he won't let them off the debt and puts them in prison. And God hates that attitude. God says, you've been forgiven so much, you must be forgiving. If you understand grace, please hear this, you've got to get it that you need to be a forgiving person outrageously forgiving. The forgiveness of the Bible, the forgiveness of grace, is counterintuitive. It is outrageous. It's otherworldly. You think, how can you justify that? Well, that's how it happens. You forgive. Now, there is a benefit to you in real forgiveness, because often unforgiveness hurts you more than the person who you've not forgiven. But that's not the main reason. The reason we forgive is because God forgave us. We, need to be, we have been outrageously forgiven. We didn't deserve anything. Jesus died for the whole lot, legally cleared the debt, legally cleared it, paid it with his own blood. I think we can forgive other people. That's the gospel. Outrageously humble. This is a church that's understood grace. Philippians 2.3, do nothing out of selfish ambition, nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit, Oh, what a challenge. I don't know about you, I'm challenged by a phrase like that. I think I do quite a lot of things still out of selfish ambition or vain conceit. Don't know about that one, don't quite understand the words. I should do, shouldn't I? I taught English once. But I mean, in a deep way, you know, what does it really mean? Just to cover my tracks there. But it probably means what I've just done, doesn't it? Proud of myself. Uh, Sorry, we're having a quiet moment here. I'm thinking about it. But I think these are challenging phrases. In humility, value others above yourselves. If we are grace people, we will understand humility. And I think that is quite a deep thing. Jesus said to his followers, if someone asks you to go with them one mile, go with them two. Now, what we think the context of that was, that Roman soldiers were could automatically, and armed as they were with their swords, you probably had to obey them, automatically ask anybody to carry a burden for at least a mile. So they could just grab Steve, soldiers say, right, carry this for me. And whatever you're doing, whoever you were, you had to do it. And Jesus said, you know what you should do? You say, I'll carry it too for you. (laughs) You know, what? The context was not nice. It was probably something that people resented. And it's like, you're just... You don't stand on your rights. You just behave outrageously. You're outrageously humble. You say, yeah, I'll carry it two miles. You can't carry it, poor little soldier. I'll carry it. No, you don't say that. It'd be sarky. Basically, it's it's counterintuitive again. It's otherworldly. But humility is very powerful in spiritual warfare because the devil doesn't understand humility. The devil's key problem was pride. And we do have to watch it because pride is being re-engineered, like so many words in our day and age, to be a very positive word. 
But in many ways, there's a film out called Pride right now. But in many ways, Pride is not very nice. It is the devil's main sin. It was his key root sin. Basically, what he said was, I will not bow to anyone. I will be my own God. I don't even want to bow to God. And that, if you read your Bible carefully, is the beginning of all sin, because that's where Satan went. And then he infected Adam and Eve with it, saying, well, you know, you can decide your own right and wrong. You can be your own gods. God's holding out on you. So pride is the root of an awful lot of what's not good in the world. And we need to learn to be people who are humble like Jesus was humble. You could argue God is a humble God. And it's sort of true. He doesn't stand on his dignity. He doesn't keep forcing his, 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 his uh, honour on people. He doesn't. That's nothing to do with worship. People distort God in their own image. God is a humble God. Jesus reflected it. God has nothing to prove. And we need to learn to be a humble people if we're going to show grace. Quickly, outrageously generous. Grace people are outrageously generous. Matthew 10, 8. Heal those who are ill, raise the dead, cleanse those who have leprosy, drive out demons. Freely you've received, freely you give. It seems to be about a whole range of things. It's not only about money. It's about love. It's about effort. It's about time. It's about attention. You've received freely. You give freely. You can apply it to money. And several chapters in the Bible do, particularly 2 Corinthians 8 through to 9. There's an awful lot of practical application. Here's one verse from there. This is the basis of Paul's appeal for them to be generous with their money and their possessions. It's 2 Corinthians 8, 9. You know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ. Though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that you through his poverty might become rich. And so the whole thing is, if you are a grace person, you're generous. You are actually generous with time, with effort, and, yes, with money. You've received so much from God freely that you give. Again, Terry Virgo. Generosity is one of the key characteristics of a grace-filled person. We want to be a generous church. Oh, God, help us to be generous to people. Help us to not only be welcoming, but to be free in time and effort and and money, and and things like that. There's many generous aspects to this church. This is not a harsh message. I hope you don't hear it that way. But it is provoking us. This is what real grace means. Let's go on quickly, last two. Grace will make us outrageously loving. John 13, 34. Jesus said, A new command I give you, love one another as I have loved you, so you must love one another. If you want to know what God's love is like, I suggest you read 1 Corinthians 13, which is an interesting chapter because it's actually about us loving, but it's using the love God has used to us, agape. And I think as you read 1 Corinthians 13, it's quite challenging, but it's also massively reassuring because when it tells us the characteristics of love, it doesn't keep a record of wrongs. Things like that. Patience and grace and love. You just read it. Always hopes the best, believes the best, as it were. You, you know the chapter, perhaps. You've got to remember, God is simply telling us to behave like he behaves to us. That is massively reassuring. Massively reassuring. God is not asking you to do something 
in 1 Corinthians 13 that he doesn't do himself. God is a God of love. Don't believe the papers. Believe the Bible. And 1 Corinthians 13, which is a magnificent passage, is not only challenging us to reflect that love to others, but is reassuring us that this is the sort of love God has shown you. Hallelujah. When you go through the New Testament, you get a lot of one another's. And I think they're all just unpacking this big command of Jesus. Love one another as I have loved you. So when it talks about honouring one another and, you know, preferring one another, depends on the translations, all the one another's, there's loads of them, there's a whole stack of them, you get a whole page full if you list them. But they're all unpacking what love is, really. And I suggest to you that a church that understands grace will show a love for one another that is beyond the ordinary. Love one another as I have loved you. And lastly, which is a bit similar, but I think it's an important one, if we understand grace, we will be outrageously like Jesus. In other words, I have the outrageous cheek to say we are all supposed to be like Jesus. A John Groves that behaves like Jesus. I don't think I'm there yet, but that's where I'm being taken. Look at 1 John 2.6. Whoever claims to live in him, Jesus, must live as Jesus did. <laughs> it's just like, that's it, yes. Yeah, if you live in Jesus, you live as Jesus did. Now, I think there are two broad senses in which that is particularly encouraging and challenging at the same time, of course. One is the moral challenge, to love one another as Jesus loved us, that we actually behave and react as Jesus would. We have an attitude like Jesus. That is where we're going. That's where the Holy Spirit is taking us. The Bible tells us, 2 Corinthians 3, verses 17 to 18, we are being changed from one degree of glory to another. There is a process going on making us like Jesus. God has a project It's to duplicate his son on the earth. It's to have men and women who behave like Jesus. It's to have a body that behaves like Jesus. And morally, that is a challenge, but it's true. An attitude like Jesus. But there's also a challenge in activity. There's an action challenge. I think he's looking for people who pray for the sick, who deliver the demonized, who proclaim the year of the Lord's favor, who show patience and grace to those who are ostracized and marginalized. In other words, it's not merely about our actions and our reactions and our, our, our um, moral positions, although they're important, but it's about our actions. So it's like Jesus at every level. We walk as Jesus walked. That means we live as Jesus lived. So God's calling us, and I am challenged by this, very challenged, He's calling me to be a Jesus like John Groves. And that's where the grace of God ultimately takes you. That's why questions of grace abuse are so silly, really. Well, does that mean I've got a ticket to heaven and I can behave like how I like? Does that mean that God accepts all the stuff I do and all I am? When you understand grace, you think God's plan for you is to make you like Jesus. And that's where grace takes you. And that will sort all of those sillinesses out. You can come as you are and should come as is. Just as I am. 
and you are loved and accepted. But the Holy Spirit's going to come into you and he's going to re-engineer you in the most glorious way to make you Jesus-like. One day, completely, you'll be renewed. You'll still be you, because if it's not you, it's not you that's been saved. John Groves will be saved. The real John Groves. But he'll be in glory, Christ-like in every way, in the new heavens and new earth. But the process is starting now, and God is very interested in it. And the grace of God is teaching you to say no. It's drawing, drawing you on, drawing you to be more like Jesus, that people might meet Jesus when they meet you. Amen? Let's finish with the last, last quote from Terry, because I do love his book, God's Lavish Grace. I think it's, I think it's going up because it's a bit long. Grace should never lead to passivity, but to outrageous adventure a lifestyle that baffles those who play safe. It threatens the status quo, not only of tentative religion, but also of cynical unbelief. It sets the church free to risk all for the praise of him who freely gave all for us.